Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news! With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Technology today is nothing like it was 20 years ago. It's hard to believe that I'm starting this episode writing portions of it from my phone, from an app, that will automatically link up to my computer, where I can continue my thoughts at a later time. It used to never be this easy. Back in the late 1990s, early 2000s, the World Wide Web, also known as the Super Information Highway, was just that. You'd dial up, and you could go anywhere in the world talk to people you'd never meet in person, buy things that would be brought right to your door instead of going to the store, educate yourself on all the things you always wanted to know. It truly was the wild, wild west in the then nearing 21st century. But what was failed to be seen immediately after the boom was that there's always a dark side. We know it to be true now. We see it on the news all the time. Back then, though, every awful thought, every crass and cruel things humans could even imagine could also be on the internet. And not only was it on the internet, you could share those same thoughts and feelings with people who felt the exact same way. Just like when this country was slowly arising and the new frontier was being established, laws and rules weren't up to par to fight the evil lurking in the shadows. In the darkness of the night at a home in Missouri, one of those wicked figures would be illuminated by a computer screen, scouring the internet for vulnerable prey, those desperate for a companion, a job, a place to live, or even a master. And just like a hunter in the wild, John Robinson would strike. These are the crimes that made your skin crawl. The missing faces you just couldn't get out of your head. The questions that never got answered. Missing and murdered in the Midwest dives deep into these unforgettable cases, solved and unsolved. A warning to all those who tune in, these episodes cover mature and sometimes graphic content. I'm your host, Toria Wilson. Now, John Robinson was not born in a modern technology era. His crimes would not begin in 2000. He would be arrested in our time with decades of criminal activity under his belt, and not just murder. Robinson was born December 27, 1943, a time where gangsters had left their mark on Chicago. Tales of Al Capone and his men leaving blood on the streets, creating their own rules, regarded in the highest command by the minions below, all made an impression on the young kids, but more so to John. 
See, even in his young age, John wasn't very good looking. His physique was doughy, soft, and round. His demeanor did not command respect. Al Compone once said, you could go a lot farther in life with a kind word and a gun than just with a kind word. Now, Robinson would never use a gun for his crimes, but his seemingly kind attitude would get him farther and darker than he could ever imagine. John had a typical family growing up, four siblings who he rarely got along with, a father who worked too much and every once in a while drank too much to the point of chaos and disaster and a little bit of jail time. He couldn't stand his mother, who would have been the head of the household, not only for taking care of children, but disciplining them as well. It's odd to me, as a crime fanatic as I am, that John would do the things he would do and hate his mother. No serial killer is alike, don't get me wrong, but many, if not the majority, still love their mother even in times when they're physically, mentally, emotionally abusive. That love-hate connection towards their mothers can sometimes be a driving force behind their disastrous deeds. John's mother wasn't trying to demean her children, though. She wanted them to be better, do better, go further. And while, yes, he was cold to his mother, he still strived to be excellent. In his teen years, he became an Eagle Scout and would later attend Quigley Preparation Seminary, a school for boys who were interested in joining the priesthood. But he was never impressionable. He hardly distinguished himself in school. An average student. And while the priesthood looked good for John, that path makes no money. Maybe notoriety in some capacity, but nothing substantial. And after comparing his father's menial work at the smokestacks at Western Electric to the gangsters who could turn a quick buck, he would make a change. Not to a life of crime, just yet. In 1961, John would attend Morton Junior College in Cicero, but he didn't graduate, but would later claim to be a trained x-ray technician. Later, a career would kick off at a Chicago hospital. Three years later, he would meet his wife, Nancy Jo Lynch. They would soon rush to the altar, having getting Nancy knocked up, their ceremony, Catholic. The pressures of being a newlywed and soon-to-be doting father would quickly arise and become more expensive. For me, if all this came to head all at once, I know because of my insane work ethic, you got to just work not only harder but smarter to make the money to survive. John, though, cut corners. He didn't want to follow the rules. He needed the money. So he got it by stealing from his employer. When confronted by these allegations, John begged. He pleaded for another chance. He'd pay it all back, every penny. And with that promise, his employers decided not to press charges. In some sense of the word at that moment, John learned that if he asked for forgiveness, not for permission, he could continue what he was doing. He's learning from his mistakes, sure, but not in the way he should have. And this would set off decades worth of financial crimes for John. And I know what you're thinking. 
Where's the blood? Where's the victims? Serial killers don't commit fraud or theft. They kill animals first. They're sociopathic, crazy people, right? And while I guess you could say that is true, again, John is not like anything anyone has ever seen before. He was stealthy, meticulous, constantly thinking six steps ahead. It's why he was able to avoid capture from both his financial and deadlier crimes later in life. So, after being caught for stealing, John wanted to start over with his small family. So he packed them up and moved them to Kansas City, Missouri. Citing his medical background, he would land two jobs, one at Children's Mercy Hospital and Truman Medical Center. He would tell his employees he had a background as a technologist in the medical lab, nuclear medicine, and radiographic fields, which in truth, he had no experience in any of these areas. So while he would use a kind word to convince his coworkers he belonged there, his performance would say otherwise. He couldn't read an x-ray, let alone take the damn picture itself. He was clumsy with children, but people chalked it up to nerves. I mean, being new in town, new hospital, it would make sense. And besides, he showed everyone his extensive training background. All of his credentials lined the walls of his office. But in truth, he had no credentials. All of those fancy documents he forged. Not only could John not do his job, but built kind of a reputation amongst his colleagues. Kind of a whore, to be frank. He tried to have affairs with his coworkers, but would end up at local nightclubs. His thirst for the darker side of sex would also start to arise at this time, but more on that in a bit. The combination of John's gross incompetence to do his job and his extracurricular activities would soon have him fired. But it wouldn't take long for this smooth talker to land something new. Fountain Plaza X-Ray was a new business in town, owned by President Harry Truman's personal doctor, Wallace Graham. Now, just like John's past places of employment, they were impressed by his training. But John's desires would soon arise again. He would try to have sex with some of the female patients that would come in. He also began robbing Dr. Graham blind, stealing so much money that in 1966, employees were not able to get Christmas bonuses. And I know what you're probably thinking. Who cares? Well, that shit sucks when you could have gotten money around the holidays and then poof, it's gone into your coworker's pocket without you noticing. Ouch. And not only was he forging checks in Dr. Graham's name to give himself the money he wanted, there were times where he would x-ray a patient and then tell them to pay up. Overall, it was estimated that between $100,000 and $300,000 were stolen from the business. And when John was once again confronted, he made up an excuse that he was just moving money around. Dr. Graham, though, wasn't having any of his shit and called the cops. In 1969, he was found guilty for the crime of, quote, stealing by means of deceit, end quote. John would serve no jail time, but would be under probation for three years. The game never stopped. Even while on probation, he would continue to steal. 
this time at a television rental company. And this time, it wasn't just money, it was actually merchandise he took. John would once again be fired, but not prosecuted. And this had John working harder than ever to become the thief that he was. In 1969, he worked for Mobile Oil, impressing the hell out of his probation officers to the point that they thought he was done with his criminal ways. He would later be caught stealing $400 worth of postage stamps. Be fired. Charged with theft. But he would only have to pay restitution in this case. And this pattern would continue. Get a job by lying about his qualifications, but impressing the hell out of his employers. Fumble around all the while stealing under their noses until he was caught. Sometimes John would be arrested, but he never served real time. His probation would just keep getting extended. In 1971, John would have to serve a few weeks in jail for violating his probation. His schemes, though, were starting to grow. And once he got out, he created a scam, stealing $30,000 from a retired teacher. John would also forge documents under a popular local company's name, asking investors to, obviously, invest in their work. One man fell for it, giving Robinson $2,500. When this business found out, they did have John Robinson arrested. He would be charged in 1976 federally for false representation, securities fraud, and mail fraud. But again, he would serve zero jail time just another extension on his probation. By 1977, John decided once again to move, just over to Kansas, though. He had four kids at this point and was still married to Nancy, despite all of John's law-breaking and cheating ways. His family, though, didn't see that side to him. Same with his neighbors and those within the community. John was just a dad, a busy one at that. He taught Sunday school at their church. He refereed at area school games. He cleaned up trails and ponds in town. He was the head of the homeowners association on his block. It just goes on and on and on. John would also start a new business while living in Kansas called Hydro Glow Incorporated using hydroponics. People could grow vegetables in their homes. Seemed like a solid idea from the literature he would promote, but it was obviously just an elaborate scam. One man on the verge of losing everything as his wife was dying of cancer thought John's product could bail him out of this tough situation, investing $25,000. The family never saw that money or any other money after that. And sadly, they weren't the only ones who fell for it. But just how many fell for it was and still is a mystery. Despite this cruel business tactic and unbeknownst to his probation officer, apparently, in 1979, John would be released from it. His probation officer would write, he hoped Robinson would, quote, continue to reap the rewards of good citizenship, end quote. What a laugh. Soon after, he'd get a job at a place called Guy's Foods, and he would go right back to his money-stealing ways tens of thousands of dollars would be taken. And not only would he later be fired for his deeds, 
The secretary, whom he had an affair with, would tell his wife about it. Ouch. He would also be sued and spend 60 days in jail, paying back 41 of the $50,000 in restitution to this company over a four-year time period. Now, this last scheme is pretty important because the things he learned during this time would be used during his deadlier spree. John created Equiplus, a management consultation service designed to bring new products out to the marketplace, as described, whatever the hell that means. But while this business was getting its start, two neighbors and potential investors introduced John to computers. In 1980, it was still very rare for the average homeowner to have them, not like in today's world where some people own two laptops and a PC, speaking from experience. John's schemes had consisted of a typewriter, whiteout, and a Xerox machine. Anything to get all the fake letters and documents, certificates out there, and make them look legitimate. Now this computer presented itself with new opportunities, even ones he couldn't have imagined. John would later create Equa 2 that was described as providing consulting services to medical, agricultural, and charitable ventures. At the same time, he would rent a shithole duplex and open a bordello. So if you were into rough sex or anything of that sort, you'd find it there. Cocaine sales also were a possible profit, according to rumors. In 1984, Equa 2 hired a sales representative, Paula Godfrey. 19 years old, a year out of high school, where she'd been a great student and a well-known ice skater. John promised Paula and some of the other girls that they were to attend a skills training program in Texas. On the day that they were set to fly, John picked Paula up from her parents' house. Her dad assumed that once his young daughter landed safely and got situated, he'd get a call. But it didn't happen and it continued on for several more days. Bill Godfrey couldn't take it anymore and finally flew to Texas himself to find his daughter. He'd come to find out she never even checked in to her hotel. And when Bill arrived home and confronted John Robinson on the whereabouts of his daughter, John had no answers. Sometime after that, Bill receives a letter apparently sent from Paula In essence, it said she was fine, grateful for John Robinson's help, and didn't want to see her family again. That letter, though, had a lot of red flags, swear words, spelling errors, grammatical issues, and her signature, all not like Paula. So the family calls police, and they pointed the finger at John Robinson. But when officers speak to him about it, he he says he knows nothing of Paula Godfrey and couldn't help them. Paula Godfrey would never be seen again. In the mid-1980s, there was one man who knew deep in his soul that John Robinson was more than a white-collared crook. District Supervisor for the Missouri Board of Parole and Probation Stephen Hames. Stephen has worked with probably thousands of criminals who have exited the prison system for good or bad. So he knew 
predicting behavior was not easy in any stretch of the imagination. He did know of John's crimes and his potential involvement in the disappearance of Paula Godfrey, but he hadn't overseen his parole case for the fact that John was being supervised in Kansas. That didn't stop Stephen, though, from digging around, especially after receiving a very alarming wake-up call. In late 1984, Stephen would receive a call from a woman named Ann Smith. She worked at a nonprofit that would help single pregnant women get the support they needed. Smith would inform Hames that Robinson had called them a few days prior, claiming to have started an organization called Kansas City Outreach. It would help unwed mothers get six months of help, provide job training, housing, and anything else they would need. Ann was impressed. All that needed to be done on the nonprofit's end was to refer possible candidates to participate. Robinson had been contacted around Christmas of a black mother in need of help, but he wasn't interested in helping her. It set off red flags for those at the center. Concerns about a black market adoption, white babies would bring a higher price. This development would also raise warning signs for Stephen Hames, who talked with a judge. It set off a small investigation, one that Hames worked diligently in to digging into John's past with the hope of stopping him before someone fell into John's latest trap. But it would just be a, a little too late. John not only reached out to this nonprofit, but Truman Medical Center, his old job. They would later contact him to try to help 19-year-old Lisa Stacy. She had moved to Kansas City a year prior, fell in love, got pregnant, and got married. But once the baby came, the marriage crumbled with her husband Carl re-enlisting into the Navy, leaving Lisa and the infant alone. That's until she met John Robinson, or what he would actually tell her his name was, John Osborne. He would promise Lisa he would get her out of her predicament, and that included a job and a place to live. That job, though, never came, and instead of setting her up in a duplex like he promised, he put her up in a roadway inn, he would make Lisa sign four blank pieces of paper and give him the names and addresses of some of her family members. After that, he said he would get her off to Chicago and then potentially Texas. On January 9th, 1985, Lisa would visit her sister-in-law at her home. Lisa went on and on about this businessman who was helping her out. Kathy Smith, though, was concerned, but she didn't push it thinking that this could be a really good thing for Lisa to get back on her feet. A few hours later, when Lisa called to check her phone messages at the motel, John Osborne had left numerous messages, panicked, not knowing where she had gone. And when the two finally got in touch with one another, John said he was immediately coming to get Lisa and the baby, despite a massive blizzard hitting the Midwest. Lisa wasn't sure if she would go with him, Kathy was fearful now, and even more so when John showed up at her door, never bothering to acknowledge Kathy, but a deep sense of urgency to get Lisa and the baby out of there. And despite the blizzard, John didn't park outside the house, but damn near a block away. Kathy tried to keep Lisa with her, but John was able to convince her to leave with him. Kathy would watch them go, but with a gut feeling 
that she would never see Lisa or the baby again. Lisa would later try to call Kathy, but got no answer. So she called her mother-in-law, Betty. In tears, she tried to explain what was going on, believing it was Betty who was trying to make Lisa give up her baby. Betty tried to correct her, save her, but Lisa would end the phone call saying, quote, I've got to go, here they are. Lisa hung up, it was her last words. The next day, Kathy and Betty contacted both the police and FBI. Lisa and the baby had checked out of the hotel room. They were gone. The man who paid for the room wasn't John Osborne, but John Robinson. And when the family found this out and where John worked, they tried to confront him, just like the family of Paula Godfrey. But they got no information. The family would later receive a phone call from a man named Father Martin, an apparent priest who let them know that Lisa and the baby were all right. But when the family would call the mission center back, they would find out that there was no such person named Father Martin working there. Lisa and the baby named Tiffany were gone. Now, I'm not sure if it was that night or the next day or what, but John would arrive home sometime later, baby in hand. His wife was obviously shocked. I mean, they had four kids. But she wasn't just shocked that it was a baby her husband was holding, but the child's condition. Dirty, smelly, hungry. Where the hell did John get this kid? John would explain that the baby came from a private adoption agency that he got for $4,000. He told his wife that his younger brother, Don, and his wife, Helen, we're flying in from Chicago tomorrow to pick the child up. See, Don and Helen had no children of their own. They tried everything they could think of with no luck. The year before, during a family reunion, Don had asked his older brother, did he know anyone who would want to give up their child or an attorney who worked on these types of things? John said he would try. Who knew that John would go to such deadly lengths to help his family? But once this adoption was nearly finalized, John would tell a very sad tale to his brother and sister-in-law that the child's mother had killed herself and that the child was left alone at a shelter. Sometime later, John would send all these documents and a birth certificate to his brother. It would later come out all the names signed on these documents, the judge, the attorneys, while all real people never signed off on an adoption, the notary that also signed turned out to be one of John's mistresses. While the entire Robinson family rejoiced in this new addition, the family of Lisa Stacy was frantic, and rightfully so. Stephen Hames, on the other hand, was trying to figure this all out. What the hell was John up to? As we've seen so far, John takes money that's not his, but people? That doesn't make any sense. What's in it for him? Hames tried to contact John. It took a few letters, but in late January, he showed up to Stephen's office. 
When he walked in the door, all of John's criminal past laid out in front of him. But John had an excuse for everything. When asked about Lisa, he did say he was trying to help mothers in unfortunate situations. His apartment that allowed prostitution? Well, two women lived there. He had no clue what they were doing. So what's all in it for him? John smiled and replied he was getting the satisfaction of helping people worse off than him. Stephen Hames was not pleased with any of these answers. And when John left, Stephen was just extremely frustrated. But he continued on. He called Truman Medical Center, the group that had referred Lisa Stacy to John's program. They told Hames that there were two other women in his care that were fine, but they knew Lisa was gone. Stephen called police about Lisa's disappearance, but they believed no crime had been committed. Well, what about Paula Godfrey, the other woman who was working with John before she up and disappeared? Police say they didn't look any further due to a letter she sent her family. Lisa Stacy's family would also confirm to Hames they too received letters from Lisa, but they seemed off, just as Paula's did to her family. One letter Lisa reportedly wrote was addressed to the social worker of the Hope House, a shelter she previously stayed at, reading, quote, Dear Kathy, I want to thank you for all of your help. I have decided to get away from this area and tried to make a good life for me and Tiffany. I borrowed some money from a friend, and Tiffany and I are leaving Kansas City. The people you referred me to were really nice and helped me with everything, and I am grateful for everyone's help. I will be fine. I know what I want, and I'm going after it. Again, thanks for your help and Hope House, and thanks for so much telling me about outreach. Everyone has been so helpful. I owe you a great deal. End quote. When confronted once again about Lisa's disappearance, this time by police, John would claim Lisa and the baby moved to Colorado. After this fact, Lisa's husband, family, and even police stopped looking. But not Stephen Hames. He contacted the FBI, not only for the missing women, but the financial crimes and the legal issue that John continued to go back and forth between Kansas and Missouri. It would take a lot of legwork for Hames and FBI agents trying to catch John Robinson to slip up, but he was always a few steps ahead. It wouldn't be until another former business partner, Irv Blattner, giving written testimony tying to John to a number of different financial crimes. For Hames and the agents, they were ecstatic. They were able to finally slap cuffs on this guy and put him away. But John was so stealthy, he was able to post his $50,000 bond and continue to roam the streets looking for new prey. It almost happened to Teresa Williams, a smart woman from Boise, Idaho. She would meet John at McDonald's. He promised to improve her life. First it was business and then it was pleasure. The two became lovers and later John moving her into an apartment. He would pretty much become her pimp. He paid for her place and other items while she would perform sexual favors to those who paid. But the longer she stayed under John's care, he would become more demanding and dangerous. At one point in May of 85, John came over to the apartment while Teresa was sleeping. She would be violently awakened by John as he grabbed her by her hair, 
spanked her, and threw her on the floor, pulled out a gun, and pointed it right to her head. He pulled the trigger. Nothing. John would then lower the empty gun from her face and would penetrate her with the barrel of the gun. Teresa was hysterical, begging for her life. John would just stare at her, take the gun, reholster it, and walk out of the apartment. That fear that John created in Teresa would help him. He tried to use her to discredit the things Irv Blattner had told investigators, forcing her to write in a diary that Blattner was going to kill her. Essentially, John's plan was to implicate Blattner for the disappearance of Lisa and Paula. So if Blattner tried to testify against him, all John would have to do was whip out this diary and show a judge and jury that Blattner couldn't be trusted. In exchange for these simple words written in a diary, John promised Teresa a trip to the Bahamas. They would be leaving June 15th. On June 7th, though, police would unexpectedly show up at her door. At first, she lied, but then began to unravel this insane tale of everything between them and the diary. She told police that John put all of her things in storage. The last day of her life was only a week away. Stephen Hames and investigators worked quickly to get Teresa in a safe space. Obviously, she was now a key witness to the monster that John Robinson hid from everyone. She had to be protected at all costs. And it wouldn't take long for John to find out. And when he did, pure rage. He began to travel all throughout Kansas City trying to find her. The FBI, though, for the first time was a step ahead moving her the minute he got close. And when John hired a private detective to hunt her down, which he was successful, investigators gave Teresa a plane ticket and a safe place to get away. At a probation hearing, John tried every trick in the book to keep him out of a jail cell. Letters of people he, quote, helped, but none of it persuaded the judge, who would revoke his probation and sentence John to seven years in prison. But John would stay free as he filed an appeal. John argued his constitutional rights were violated as he had been denied to confront his accuser, Teresa Williams, who never came to any of his hearings. So a Missouri appeals court sided with Robinson. There was nothing to hold John anymore, and he was a free man. But that was on the Missouri side. On the Kansas side, more legal trouble. John went to trial over his financial schemes. He would be found guilty by a jury of his peers. The state would then ask the judge during sentencing, adding the Habitual Criminals Act, because of all the legal trouble John had been in over the years. The judge did take this under consideration, ordering John to spend five to 14 years in prison. But before he was set to spend time in a jail cell, the county attorney continued to file more charges for other scams John had been a part of. And it didn't help matters that the Business Journal magazine would write a damning piece about John, outlining two decades of deceit and schemes and all the people he had wronged. But he would commit one more crime before he'd have his time in prison. Catherine Clampett came to the Midwest in January of 1987. Growing up, she was super intelligent, but had a wild side to her. 
Her brother, just wanting what's best, tried to find her a stable job and stumbled upon an ad that Robinson had placed in a community paper. She quickly would get the job and be away from home a lot, sometimes days at a time, and her brother never knew where she would go. When she had been gone for a week, her brother called the cops and even Robinson himself seeking answers. But police again would do nothing, just like Paula Godfrey and Lisa Stacy. There wasn't enough evidence that John had anything to do with Catherine Clampett going missing. And just like Paula and Lisa, Catherine would never be seen again. Robinson would begin his prison sentence on May 16, 1987. He was considered an excellent inmate at Hutchinson Correctional. He would complain about his health and even would suffer from some small strokes, leading to some droopiness on the right side of his face. But he was still strong, both body and mind. He was smart, and he would dive deeper into the world of computers, learning everything about them. It wouldn't take long for experts to believe that John had been rehabilitated and wasn't a threat to society. But there was one person standing in the way of his freedom, Stephen Hames. Hames didn't buy his bullshit. He didn't believe for a second that John was a changed man. But again, John was smart. He would plead to a judge in May of 1991 for mercy and freedom, claiming poor health and claim that Stephen Hames was out to get him lying about anything to bend the law and keep John in jail. It didn't work, and he was ordered to spend another two years in jail. Robinson would finally leave prison in 1993, but not without a mess on his hands. He had numerous convictions under his belt now, scathing articles that tarnished his good name. His family had to move out of their home, and Nancy Robinson had to pick up that financial slack. Her family had to move out of their home to a mobile home park, not only to live, but to operate. John Robinson, though, was not planning on living life outside of prison as the stand-up guy he created to fool the prison and probation board. No, no, no. He knew exactly what he wanted, and he knew exactly how to get it. And that's where we'll pick up on part two of John Robinson. Episodes for Missing and Murdered in the Midwest are researched, written, and recorded by Toria Wilson. Production is by Elise Edens and Hannah Rodriguez. Thank you so, so much for listening in, and tune in to the next episode, coming soon.